Hello and welcome to The Real Maxime Podcast. I'm Maxime, your host. I'm an economist, former tech entrepreneur, hedge fund founder, and private investor. The ability to transact and store your money without requiring permission is the most visible aspect of Bitcoin's ability to create sovereign individuals. Nobody can make exceptions for any Bitcoin owner who stores their Bitcoin wherever they want for any length of time. This is possible if you run your own node or use a non-custodial wallet to store your Bitcoin. Central banks, on the other hand, own fiat money and can make exceptions by printing more. In fact, you lack the authority to destroy your fiat money. It is illegal in the majority of countries around the world. The fact that Bitcoin is censorship resistant is a key factor that gives the individual a choice, a form of sovereignty to choose how and where to spend your money, as well as opt in and out of systems as you see fit. Bitcoin is experiencing a resurgence and continued validation amidst a severe shakedown of the US banking system following the duration shock induced by the Federal Reserve's aggressive, and one could argue, ill-timed efforts to contain realized inflation. Its price almost doubled since reaching a bottom in late 2022, which many see as vindication and illustration as to how broken the banking system is. The ecosystem is also seeing a resurgence in new innovations such as ordinals and BRC20 fungible tokens. Those come with their own growth pains. For the first time, transaction fees on the Bitcoin network have exceeded mining rewards. Inevitably, this will spur a vigorous debate within the community. Austin, Texas-based on-chain capital embodies the spirit of Bitcoin. Fresh off a $60 million Series B for investors including Baller Equity Partners and Nidig, it offers a collaborative custody solution that shares control of a user's Bitcoin between a private key the user holds and private keys held by on-chain and other financial services providers. The model utilizes Bitcoin's native multi-sig capabilities to offer the benefits of self-custody without the risks that come with a single point of failure. On-chain doesn't have the ability to move or utilize client funds on its own, which were the types of actions that helped lead to crypto exchange FTX's collapse. On-chain currently secures over $2 billion in Bitcoin across thousands of keys. On-chain also offers Bitcoin collateralized loans and has originated over 500 million of such loans since 2017. It is my real pleasure to welcome Joe Kelly, OnChain's co-founder and CEO, as our guest today. As you will hear, his story is nothing short of extraordinary. From working the early morning hours on a tugboat along the Hudson River in his early career, to challenging the banking status quo. I hope you enjoy our conversation. I was born in Anchorage, Alaska. I was there until I was 14 or so, around that time my mom died of cancer, fortunately, for about a year or so more of uh, being on chemo and things. And my dad pulled my sister and I around the kitchen table around that time and shared out. He'd, you know, he'd always wanted to live on a boat, like due to big sailing adventures as a kid. I think, I think now's the time to do this. And so he you know, made a very brave choice. He took me and my younger sister out of school, out of public school at the time. And we'd sold everything, moved into a motorhome that we drove to Florida, it took over about six months. And then in Florida, sailboat, moved on to that over a couple months of getting it outfitted and things like that. And then took off in the Caribbean for three years. And it was just a really great family adventure and a healing journey, but it was named after my mom, all these good things. And went through the Panama Canal and saw a lot of things that as a teenager that not everyone was fortunate enough to get to see. My dad had a small business in Anchorage doing like computer and small network services. So he was already kind of a technologist and entrepreneur guy and independent thinker. And say like his inspiration and then that, that boat journey really inspired me as to to wanting to be an entrepreneur, wanting to you know, take the risk and set out, start a company, kind of find my own way and some things. So by the time I turned 18, I left the boat, I actually worked in, it's funny to return to New York more in like 
capital markets like suited up guys these days. But but back then, I actually worked in New York on tugboats in the harbor. So like it's out there, these big big steel things. It's very very cold, two a.m. mornings in New York Harbor, but also some like really fantastic passengers going up to Albany in the fall and seeing the uh, Hudson Fall colors is is really something special. So a great experience. And then I ended up in Austin for school. I originally went to the business school at UT. I dropped out after a year, finding it to be really a very career track, career-oriented school. That's kind of changed since then. There's there's now more of an entrepreneurial focus. But knowing I wanted to start companies, knowing I had some enough real-world experience to give me the confidence to, to try to set out and do that, I did. And I had a few kind of smaller projects on the side that didn't really take off or were just some ways to kind of earn some means. I fortunately met on campus, but after I left full-time, two grad students that had started a website called InfoChimps, and they needed a business person, clearly. They needed somebody to kind of handle operations within the context of that project, and we wanted to figure out how ways to turn it into a business. And so that began a four-year journey in partnership with them that grew into a data analytics platform at really the right time for that kind of a thing as big data was was growing. And we sold the business in 2013 for a great outcome, and, and then that then I got into Bitcoin, and so I don't want to get too far away from your first question because then that's when like, the next big chapter starts with Unchained, but those are kind of my entrepreneurial beginnings. I find it to be an example of grit and character, and one of the things that struck me when we first met and had this conversation is it comes across. I don't know, it's maybe some of it is subconscious, but you project that aura on the one hand of a lot of confidence, but acquired through time and trials and really putting yourself out there and not necessarily following the path that is predicated on a lot of folks out there. What do you attribute this? Because some people just constantly gravitate towards the more entrepreneurial endeavor. I certainly fall in that camp. I remember, and not to throw myself in the conversation, but as a comparison point, even from an early age, just this appetite of wanting to build my own businesses and build groups and teams and trying to get my friends involved. What do you attribute it to on your end in terms of not following the conventional path? Um, you know, thanks for the compliments. And yeah, I, I do think there are some common things with, with entrepreneurs. It's not all good. Or I actually recall I'd met, like, if you've ever heard Steve Blank, but the guy who wrote Four Steps of the Epiphany and think, you know, all the seeds of, of ideas that became the lean startup and customer development and those things. I met him in Austin like 12, 13 years ago now. And I'm shaking his hand and kind of quickly describing my background and talking about early entrepreneurship. He know the commonality of like, sometimes it's, it's just, it is childhood trauma, childhood hardship and like losing your mom to cancer in my case or other cases can be other divorce or things like that but sometimes it like i think what that can kind of create is that like sort of inward turn or that you know seeking of kind of inner voice or inner stability to get through a problem or challenge and i think that can have sometimes as negative effects like trauma does as far as like stilting emotions and emotional growth and connection with the world around you and other people but they can also kind of create your inner vision and a North Star for like how you want to be and maybe what you want to see or realize in the world. And then these days, you know, a lot of artists and people that I think listen to those voices and you know, don't always like go, go creative fields, they go business. And or if you're like influencing around business and commerce, that's maybe where you go. So that might be what I offer. I mean, I do think I can also be a glutton for punishment and pain for whatever reason. Or just early on, also figured out that if you're just willing to work hard as a 20 year old and just grit it out, like you can get pretty far. I think when you're older, you can usually apply wisdom and a network or other forms of leverage to not have to just rely on pure gumption. But yeah, I think that's like, those would be two two factors I can kind of point to. I don't know how much they speak to your experience. No, it, it does. I think we also have inherently different assessments of risk and different risk appetites. And 
different pain thresholds, whether it's physical or mental. And the entrepreneurial path is obviously very mentally challenging. So I think it's a combination of having a higher pain tolerance. Because, and I always say this for listeners, for people who are considering starting a business, especially in times that we're at right now, in a period where there's tremendous turmoil in the startup community, I think it's important to lay it out there and just highlight how hard things can get and how resilient one might need to be in order to get over the hump and get something off the ground. You've certainly done a few times. So I think that really encompasses your professional DNA. I think it's very well contained and, and it stands out. And I could see how it developed over time. Talk to us a little bit about the setbacks that you experienced throughout sort of your development and potentially up to the early days of starting on Chained. Were there phases that really helped you grow that you can recall? And some of these moments might have been difficult, but important in your own development. Yeah, certainly can recall some hard times. And some of those were at the really the first startup where we'd raised around, it became a series A and one business plan, a business plan would be a data marketplace, aggregating content from Twitter, from US like NOAA weather data, US census data, all, all kind of building out a big data library in the data marketplace in the you know, 2009, 2010 timeframe. And that strategy, uh, while there are now examples of some of those folks kind of uh, it's like data.world here in Austin and some others that are trying something similarly. It was a very boil the ocean kind of business model. And that's kind of one of the more ab- abstract lessons from it. But it did, on a more hard-nosed basis as an entrepreneur, really point out the challenges you face if you don't start out right away with like that end client in mind or that end market or who you're serving, what job you're doing for them. Because if you're just for the, oh, well, here we are, we're going to assemble all the world's most interesting data sets. And of course, that'll be interesting and cool to people. It's kind of a backward business plan. and that caused ultimately a ton of this pain that I'll describe, which means like having to go through a pivot, you know, having you know, raise these investor dollars, but then ultimately finding that this model wasn't working and you make the decision as a business to pivot. And so, you know, that pivot was something that I really led as, as the kind of you know, key business executive for the business. And so it required a lot of board realignment and investor realignment, further fundraising and getting the team on involved in a new plan. So it was painful, but it was also a big proving ground for you know, leadership and that, that's in grit that we're talking about and you know within two years and we'd hired more executives and we'd started like land deals with big fortune 500 companies and others that wanted the the product we were selling at that point which just became kind of a repackaging of our underlying technology and capabilities and that it worked well enough that we sold the business in 2013 and it was a good outcome it wasn't the, the kind of grand slam but whatever i don't want i also don't want to dismiss it it was, it was good and what i'm most proud of though through all that kind of thing is like the, the team and culture we had and group of folks that still, you know, to this day, gets together once a year or more for, for some happy hours. And I also really mentioned this to advise you the day that, you know, it's like Shackleton, people aren't familiar with his, his leadership story. He's really my kind of leadership avatar and that kind of person that you know, when it comes to those hard times, you're really looking after the crew, you're looking after the people that you're fortunately there alongside and you know, how are they taken care of? How are they going to be okay and good for the long run? And so those and these startup journeys, I think at the end of the day, they're ideally creating a bunch of value for clients, investors, but it's also a journey for all the people that take part of it and are under the umbrella. And these places can be rocket just for people's careers and then go on either inside the company or afterwards to go do a bunch of great and amazing things. And like if money made didn't make a company didn't make a dollar for investors but did that, like I think that's one of the things you can't control because sometimes as we see in these macro climates, like you know, businesses get wiped out for totally ancillary, totally non you know, related reasons to 
the choices management was making, but maybe where they get their dollars. And then, but the, but like if, if you treat your people right and well, you still have done some good in the world. So veering a little bit from the, the hard time thing, but like that, that's all, I think all the lessons, most of the lessons that kind of baked into that. Well, I like that one of your takeaways is that it takes a village to raise a business, to build a business. And that includes a number of stakeholders and whether obviously in the press and the glory of startups, we talk about financing, we talk about investors, but there are thousands and thousands of people working in those companies. And they all want in on the dream that a few founders have actually come up with and invented and ideated, and they want in on that, right? And so your point about, A, that it, it takes groups of people to make these stories become and turn into viable businesses, but that you have to take care of people along the way. You have to align all the stakeholders and make sure that they're getting taken care of. Where I think some issues arise is when a group of a contingent or a group of stakeholders actually gets shafted in the process. And so it's important, I think, as much as one can, especially when you are building or investing, to keep those things in mind, to always try as much as one can, right, depending on where the business is, that everyone shares in and everyone feels like they've been part of an adventure that was worthy of their time, worthy of their life, really, because that's what you dedicated something like this. What would you say makes you particularly a good fit for your role? And how much experience did you have before stepping in into the kind of leadership position that you're in right now? I'd say a lot of what I've had to learn here at Unchained has been you know, on the job. And my co-founder here, you know, he and I had worked together at InfoChimps. We were both co-founders there. And there were others. But he and I decided to embark on this adventure together. And that had been after you know, some time and consideration of other industries and places to partner up in. But selling on Bitcoin is really the most interesting and you know, long-term the kind of thing that can hold your curiosity and interest for a decade or more. It's really important in considering a long-term journey like a startup. And I'd say I definitely had curiosity. That was kind of the first thing, both about Bitcoin, but also capital markets and you know, finding our way through the evolution of Unchained in, in a way that exposed me and exposed us to just a side of the world, you know, having come from more of a technology startup and big data kind of background and being based here in Austin, not in Wall Street or the Bay Area kind of was unique. We kind of felt like outsiders or in-betweeners from those more steep you know, story traditions and cultures. So a lot of it was, I think, just a lot from my career, you know, another second colleague here jokes of just like, you kind of learn the hard way. I think that's okay. I think that's where, at least in this business, it's done on a very sound foundation, done in a lot of ways that like has been slow, careful, and it's meant to create a lot of trust for our clients. But then I've also been super fortunate that like the people we've hired and that have come along at various ways in our journey. And Increasingly, investors are more more domain experts and are more pieces of people that have pieces of the puzzle that I don't, but can rely on to provide and fill in those areas of the vision that you know we didn't have and you know help us kind of execute in those areas. So coming back to the village idea you, you brought up, that's already there. I think for me, it's like Bitcoin. Building a business like a chain were easy and relatively obvious. People in Wall Street would already have done it. And maybe it's slightly more obvious to those people because they understand financial services business models. But that doesn't mean it's easy. Or if you try to build it in an easy way, then you're also likely to like blow something up. So what we've done at Unchained is a lot more of a longer term approach. It can kind of feel like a lot of times, like it's like 60% of the time, you're just trudging up a mountain against some steep wind. And then 
the 40 other 40 percent of the time you're like you've got a tailwind that's a thousand miles an hour with hundreds of clients a month beating down your doors and prices ripping and all this kind of thing so it's a very very volatile business in that way but that's what i think then suits those of us among us that have grit or really kind of shine in the like challenging moments and, and kind of stay steady so there's some things that have like suited me well here and you know can only i can only like uh feel gracious for the the team of people that have complimented me in the ways that have not always been sufficient in my role yeah that makes sense and if you think about your point about disrupting or saying if it were easy other folks would have done it there's also a question of again what is the appetite towards taking the risk to attempt that and what is the opportunity cost of doing so and i think this is a common theme crypto as it relates to the willingness to on some level improve the way financial markets the banking system the monetary system works one has to consider what the opportunity cost is for those who are well versed in the mechanics of how the current systems work right and so since there's a lot of rent that accrues to that community it makes it very difficult to attract talent whether it's as entrepreneurs or followers who are coming and join on a project. So it takes very specific individuals with an atypical background who see the opportunity but are not necessarily part of the same mold, right? And I think this is also a common theme in your story in that you are building a financial services business. You are working on an alternative to the frameworks that have been employed for a long time that are accruing this rent. And I think it takes individuals with that atypical background, not only the courage, but also the fact that, let's face it, if you're in a comfortable seat on Wall Street making a very comfortable living, the temptation to go and try something like this is much less, right? Yeah. And I would just only add to your last point, just like that idea of yeah, like the innovator's dilemma is, is very real. And the, the idea of like, just when we get into kind of the nature of how entry works too, like people just kind of breaks your brain and you have to be like ignorant enough to start a business like this of traditional finance to really go down that path. Well, I think it's a good point that you're making. Absolutely. So we talked about your co-founder. How did the group come together in terms of building the right work dynamic relationship and trust, which is so important in order to be able to go through the motions of starting a business? Yeah. So my co-founder and I, I mean, really got through a lot of that with our first business, you know, knew each other well, we developed a friendship, we'd hung out, our wives, then, you know, then girlfriends, then fiancés that become friends too. So we were, we joke, already partners, life partners in a lot of ways. So when it came time starting Unchained, that one of that trust was like, you know, just, we swam and it was, it was implicit everywhere. So that, you know, could really get things started early on. And then just kind of snowballed from there. Like, you know, not everybody that we've hired works out. Things change sometimes quickly, sometimes over years. But still at four, there's a pretty, you know, culture here of a lot of frankness, openness, authenticity. That's something I know I, I try to bring personally as much as possible and, and it's there and just and that whole kind of treating people well idea does engender and build a lot of trust. So kinda of, you know, like like can attract light. Also being somewhat of a Bitcoin focused company, it kind of does bring in a lot of people who are hard nosed thinkers or willing to be challenged and challenge things on a pursuit of truth and in a pursuit of what's real and that's healthy in a company and also kind of reinforces some of that trust. I think some of what I'm most proud of at Atrubus too is like building the kind of company that's so porous between itself and the, the community and the client base it finds itself in. 
So so just find those those lines that blur quite readily. And that's how I know as an entrepreneur instinctually, like we have a market, there's a market here. It's not a question. I'm not running around wondering who am I selling to at any given time. And then it also builds that base of people from whom you do hire and for whom you can try to do good or you can host events and you can interact with regularly. So coming out kind of from trust and then that, that all resonates back to like financial services business model where we are always, any business depends on trust, some level force brand and its capabilities to deliver and come through. But financial services, it, that really just deepens the need and the value of trust. So yeah, I think it's a great question. I'm glad to see you asked that, but it's a yeah, multi-factor thing that comes together for us. Absolutely. And then the word fiduciary comes fiducia in Latin. It, it means trust. And so the various aspects of running a business or being entrusted with other people's funds, as we see time and again, it seems to be a recurring theme in the story of markets and, and banking. So it's very important to have this notion of accountability between stakeholders, starting with the founders. There is sort of a moral contract that needs to be established where you can't really have a success story without having this notion of trust. Of course, you want an alignment of incentives. You want everyone to be rowing in the same direction, but you want, when things go upside down, you know, trust is the one thing you can rely on because your incentives, no matter how well aligned they are, might just run out of juice at the time. And I think, again, we're in a difficult period for entrepreneurs throughout the, the country and throughout the world. And I think a lot of teams that don't have this are going to get tested in you know, more intense ways. What were the founding team's sort of core desires and outcomes from this venture? Some people are motivated by money. That in and of itself is never sufficient. So I wanted to understand, obviously, you probably want to make money from this endeavor. What else comes to mind? And that if you could share also from your perspective, as well as your co-founder. I'd say like, you know, on a personal level, doing good, doing good for people. is like the most kind of root want, of course, and that like seeing that unchained benefits the widest swath of people as possible. Now, there's a ways in which almost that due to our market definition, you become constrained for by the Bitcoin market. And so as much as Bitcoin is saturated into people's psyche and wallets and portfolios, like that's that kind of sets a bound in some ways to the kind of current absolute addressable market at any second or point in time for, for Unchained. So we're always kind of tied to the kind of growth and ongoing idea that Bitcoin is a common good for humanity. It is something that is worthwhile, deserves to exist, deserves to be known by people and accessible and usable. And that does kind of, it's helpful to be aligned with something like that that does continue to demonstrate through like just news and happenstance its utility. So that's something that's also been really true for our journey, of, especially some of those, those the really hard times and bear markets and things like that. So many questions about Bitcoin's future in certain ways, seeing the the ways in which it does shine in really dark periods or does really come to be seen as like an alternative to banks and banking and traditional financial systems. Like the system just can't help itself but show, prove, prove Bitcoin's value. So, I mean, this is a, a common for-profit enterprise. We do have venture capital dollars. Many of those dollars are aligned with you know, Bitcoin and this idea of it being good. And so it's good for Unchained, it's good for Bitcoin. And thesis there that kind of you know, rises with all boats, right? It helps rise the tide, I guess, some, some analogy like that. You know, Drew and I never set out to, with an acquisition plan. I think that builds a healthy company culture or the, the kind of place that can have good values that do engender to treat clients the way they deserve. So that's kind of been it. You know, I think, and then there's those kind of learning journey we've all been on, really kind of figuring this out. 
no one's built a successful Bitcoin financial services company before. Any successful ones are not profitable and still only a few years into the journey. And so that's to say that while we can copy some playbooks from traditional finance and you, know, you can build on some first principles and sound engineering decisions for how you deliver product, but it's an iteration and continual process to get those to come together correctly and well. I love this approach. And we get a sense of how genuine your commitment is to a variety of different causes, starting from, again, this notion that you want to take care of people along the way, you want to do good. You also want to take care of your customers and the users of your product, right? It's not just, hey, I figured out a way to extract value from customers. You don't see it as a zero-sum game in the way I read or interpret your business philosophy is one where you want to actually enlarge the pie in terms of the value and the help you're bringing out in the market, right? And that is consistent with, obviously, the ethos of Bitcoin. And wherever people fall in along that spectrum of being diehard proponents or skeptics, I think there's something to be said about the fact that going back to this whole, we're all in this together, ethos seems to be pervasive across all your statements. If we get more specific about the initial thesis behind the idea of on-chain capital. Like if you think about the basics when an entrepreneurial team goes to an investor and says, what's our purpose? What problem exists out there? What is our solution to that problem? And what's the market opportunity that this will address? Like what was that for on-chain? So you mentioned, I you know, we learned from that painful pivot at our first company that starting out, it's silly to start out without a customer market in mind. Like who are you, who are you providing value for? And we, in researching Bitcoin and this ecosystem, one of the great you know, nifty things you can do with it as a transparent public blockchain is download that blockchain and run some numbers. And we ran numbers back in 2015, early 16, that showed 60% of all Bitcoin had moved for a year or more. And we thought, huh, you know, even at that time where Bitcoin's like $200, getting up to $1,000 or so, that was still you know, many billions of dollars of wealth that we thought were held by millions of people many of whom were in the U.S. And we thought, geez, if those people were holding real estate or stock or any kind of other asset, you know, they'd be getting called by Goldman Sachs, they'd be getting called by traditional incumbent financial services firms, wealth managers to help manage that wealth, either custody it or provide them services, liquidity. And so we thought, okay, this is going to be a while for those people really come around to seeing Bitcoin as anything more than a fad, based on whatever they would say at the time. And even if they do come around and want to do it, they're probably going to think about it, you know, in a way inverted from what a person that might be more Bitcoin native would think they're going to come at it from their principles based on Wall Street or how things are done in that world and that landscape and not appreciating kind of what a Bitcoin first set of technologies and then also even like ideologies or some you know, thinking and behaviors that based on the market. So we saw that, that kind of core, that collection of those, the long-term Bitcoin holder was Unchained's initial you know, guiding North Star, the place we wanted to focus. And we came to triage products and come up with what to do for in this community, we thought, I think ignorantly, so in hindsight, the, the problems of custody were kind of relatively solved. Or Arbor Walls are a thing, you know, people you know, can use custodians here and there, blah, blah, blah. Also, that trading is maybe necessarily solve things. Ah, of course, if you want to buy Bitcoin, you're going to exchange. But nobody's doing the kind of financial services like lending against the asset. So we thought, okay, that, that's maybe where we'd start. Lending dollars against Bitcoin, nobody was doing it yet. You couldn't find any place to, to go get a, a loan like that publicly. Thought it made, of course, great and serviceable collateral. And you can design a system to deal with margin calls and, you know, go down all the, the necessary steps to do that. 
And it would bring together some interesting problems, one on, on custody, how do you safe keep it? And then secondly, on capital and how do you interface with traditional finance and capital markets? So as to kind of bridge them in with this new world of Bitcoin holders. So that, that was really the jumping off point and why I say those first two assumptions about other products were kind of ignorance because we did discover that, you know, really ultimately custody isn't a solved problem. I think Unchained has the best still custody solution for people, but it's always getting better. There's the technology at the end of the day. Technology always advances or evolves. So there are always kind of more things to do there, more things to support. And so what we did at Unchained is having turned our initial custody solution that was for loans and lending, and that became an extended product that clients can use on their own. They can create vaults and, and secure their, their Bitcoin with us without taking a loan. And that's actually now the majority of clients, the majority of assets we have protect are in that kind of a context. And likewise, you know, now once you're helping secure Bitcoin for people, they're going to want to be buying and selling, trading around their assets and long-term holdings. And so that, again, isn't something you're just going to want to accept that people will go to Coinbase or some other exchange for. There's too many steps. It's expensive. There's, there's a lot of hops and potential security mishaps involved. So bringing together those products in, in an ecosystem and a unified experience for the client became kind of our, our guiding strategy, at least over the last few years. And it's also something we're sticking with. And so if that, that gives context in terms of the idea that product, the initial concept of market and strategy what we're doing for people and so what did you get started with i mean what was the initial capital you started what were the resources and did you have to go out and pitch your project initially did you bootstrap it what was the initial sort of operational genesis of getting an operation up up and going with the initial functionalities that you'd identified you know, drew my, my co-founder and i we had some some capital we could afford to invest in the business and you know, maintain we had a small office space for a while we, we spent on our first and I honestly say like our first true expense, more than a few hundred dollars was a uh, five grand we spent with an AML consultant. I always kept that storyline, just you know, came to talk to like banks and regulators later. But we're, we spent those early months researching, really understanding what it took to start a business like this. I'd read, you know, literally Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, like, you know, statutes and, and other laws around lending and how off this kind of product. So he handled product and you know, engineering, handled business operations and the how on everything. And it, it took, it, it was about six to nine months of like development. We'd hired uh, another engineer too that we'd worked with previously. And it was kind of like, oh, a four to five person team basis. Got the initial product out. We'd raised, you know, some of that kind of friends and family money in 2017 to also kind of further finance the things we're working on. But also the most important thing, you know, the, the long running stories and issues for our business is capital markets and raising lending capital. We fortunately met Individuals or the Bitcoin holder that provided some initial capital for our loans, and that kind of got us off to the races by you know, like Q4 of last year when we were that's when we were kind of like putting out the blog post. All right, doors open, Unchain's open for business, lending lending dollars against your Bitcoin. BlockFi kind of launched uh, like weeks after that type of a thing, and then we raised our seed round of uh, close to three million bucks that closed in May of 2018. And then thus begins really that kind of you know, cycle, cyclic nature of our business and the industry as far as then began like a two-year bear market. So would you say that because of your positioning and your underlying sort of philosophy, right, as to what you wanted to accomplish, I like to think of the Bitcoin community, if you're very focused and obviously authentic in your representations and beliefs in what the ecosystem brings to the table, that is a very well-identified group of supporters, some of them with deep pockets because they believe strongly and a lot of their wealth is tied to the success of Bitcoin. Do you think that it made it 
somewhat easier to stand out, let's say, versus other crypto or Web3 efforts? And did it make it easier to convince people to back you? By being Bitcoin only, I'd say, I think I had some advantage or eked out within like, you know, some of the most faithful, but it's a mix. There are a lot of people out there that still, they might hold large Bitcoin quantities, but they also own other things. And even among early investors, that was a, that was a pattern. And I can also share, you know, from our own journey, being entrepreneurs that, especially initially, were really keen to be guided by customer feedback, really keen to iterate features that would make Unchained, provide the most value as possible for clients. So in building the initial phase, did you have suitable advisors who were helping you sort of navigate the building phase? Or was it pretty much you and your co-founder by yourselves? Pretty good. I mean, I think I know one of the things you get out of hard times and raw experience is that you have to like, yeah, I've certainly developed a coach voice of how I've coached myself for a lot of those times, but we had good enough and good enough to get to where we are and, and have been, I think. You, know, you could wish for better, but it's just, it was really hard to find. You know, I think that's one of the challenges of being early too, is that like you know, there were no Bitcoin-only funds. One of the challenges of raising, raising money up until I mean, just these last two years, a company that incorporated in 2016, there were just, the, even the crypto investors were those, they, they'd want either a, a blockchain technology first thing or something that was like all across broad asset or institutional focused. And so a individual focus. Bitcoin financial services firm, which is not a very popular investment thesis within a a VC community that saw the world very differently. Now you do have these kind of Bitcoin dedicated funds and people that kind of go out of their way to invest a lot of time and energy in Bitcoin specific things. But we were very early and thinking back to help start and spawn and spark a lot of the interest and designs around these Bitcoin focused firms. Yeah, I mean, it's obviously hard enough to put all the pieces together. And again, back to this notion of having a variety of stakeholders involved in making sure that you don't have any blind spots. I think one of the hardest thing when you're building a business or running a business for the matter is we're all limited in the number of facets that we have and that allow us to grasp the full extent of all the parameters and the dimensions of running the business or building it. And so what a good advisory board confers to the founders is an ability to sidestep those blind spots. And it's not easy because you also need to make sure that, again, everyone is aligned, that you are going to get your fair share of advice as opposed to just getting your token contribution from individuals that you might have identified might be relevant for your venture. So again, to listeners who are in the process of starting a business or contemplating it, you have to think in terms of of blind spots and having a variety of different viewpoints so that as the founder or founder's You can draw from that information, draw from all the signals and the information, get away from that and inform your own opinion and hopefully create an outcome that is going to be superior to your own individual sort of processing capability. So how are the founder roles split when you started? Has it evolved over time? It's evolved. I mean, it was certainly split early from Drew handling product engineering, a lot of strategy and ways we'd kind of meet in the middle and my handling operations, client service legal, compliance, just the, the business side of things. As we've hired executives, as our executive team has kind of grown and changed shape and form, each of us are filling in you know, complementary roles inside of that that group of people. So it's it's flexed. And you know, in some ways, we've, at least in periods of the company, we'll be working really close together, talking every day, other times once a week. That's rare, usually not, not as encouraged, but it just does happen sometimes. These 
got those roadmap of things and team and folks that they were fortunate to be you know, close to 90 people. So we have a organization, a lot of great people, great leaders. So across the board with that, we cover things and it's not, not just a strictly you know, co-founder run business, so to speak. That's great. And you've certainly seemed to have built the layers to take on the vision, codified it and pushing it through the organization. So I want to refocus on the business itself. I want to understand, and for listeners, if you could summarize your main offering and how are you structured to deliver value to your customers? And as a byproduct of this question, who are your main target customers and markets at this juncture? For anyone that's holding Bitcoin to the long run, your one of your principal concerns is safekeeping and security. And so our core offering, core experience is around this, the custody of Bitcoin. We do that through a collaborative custody vault. That means and it's a multi-signature setup. The client's holding two keys, Unchained holds one. And that means the client has unilateral control. So with two of those three keys, they can spend funds at any time without Unchained's cooperation or intermediation. But we can also fortunately back the, the client up if they lose a key or don't have access to it. They can use one and we can do that second signature with them after you know, some verification. So that kind of core idea, again, it's like custody is not a solved problem, but it's a huge market. It's growing all the time because more people holding Bitcoin and, and the price does appreciate things like that. So that, that custody is what's most important and it, it creates that relationship and sparks that relationship. And more often, and for many people where they're sometimes first foray into self-custody, first foray into a hardware wallet. And so we do also provide expertise and there, there's people here on staff that will spend an hour hour and 15 minutes with clients, helping them initialize their hardware wallet and get on board with a vault and then coach them on how to back up their seeds, how to take care or use the hardware wallets and then provide technical support. Probably it's still kind of a you know, technical experience when it comes to safekeeping one's Bitcoin. That core kind of custody relationship, of course, also comes with kind of concerns you have for any long-term asset around inheritance. And so, you know, understanding how this asset might transfer to a spouse or a next of kin or within a state-like context or trust. Those kind of matters are on the platform is featured well for helping with those through protocols on inheritance. You know, it's, it just happens. Like if you're somebody who had sold Bitcoin and then you die, like your spouse may not know much about this stuff. And then, you know, they want somebody to call or want to talk to somebody. So Unchain can really be in that position to be kind of a one place, one most up shop for that long-term holder. And then our financial services, such as Bitcoin back loans, trading, IRA accounts, those are the things that lay on top of that relationship. And the next to that as well are our business accounts. So if you own a business that is an operating company that might hold Bitcoin in its treasury, or it's just an LLC or anything else that has business set up, we can be your, how you manage your Bitcoin treasury. And then that involves more features for account controls and individual degradation that responsibilities, not segregation responsibilities inside the company around management of the Bitcoin. So that's, that kind of is meant to be a really full, full suite experience, full services shop for the long-term Bitcoin holder. And who would you say is your main competition at this point? Fortunately, recent markets have taken out a lot of the people who, you know, that kind of general investor class came into the asset, then you know, Bitcoin, and then looked at BlockFi or these other places as, you know, how they want to take a loan, or you know, they just had the, there's kind of a mass market appeal through a lot of those folks in, and you know, people loan shop maybe with us versus the BlockFi. Fortunately, we're really kind of truly the last understanding that you would trust due to our model and the fact that we've never had a loan loss for our entire history. And then at that level, it's tough. I actually I dislike competition because it's Bitcoin is such a small market. And in the grand scheme of things, like we want as many people activating into Bitcoin and activating into kind of multi-sig, you know, self-custody ideal as possible. Everyone that does that or converts somebody into using a hardware wallet, they're just helping create market for us. 
but you'd have others out there. You have Casa, you've got other hardware, you've got uh, other like mobile applications that are you know, multi-sig focused and adopting inheritance practices. You have, you have other kind of Bitcoin focused financial services firms, like River, Swan. So all of us are in some ways, same teams in green, everybody holding their own keys, everybody in a Bitcoin you know, dominated future and with safe and sound Bitcoin financial practices. But those are people that for attention, for advertising spots for client relationships at times, we may be buying for the same thing. So what would you say is your approach to capturing market share? Of course, you've got a lot riding on an existing user base and you've said it, you've been able to survive at a time where some other players have struggled due to your model and your inherent philosophy and, and execution, quite frankly, as well. How do you grow within that Bitcoin footprint. And then the next question is, how do you grow the Bitcoin footprint itself? What are your thoughts on that? Great pointers. And I think one of the, I was reminded of this, there's like a this great Seth Godin blog post and there's like a marketing like onion that he presented of you have your kind of product or service in the middle. Then the next layer of the onion is your support and service, how you service the clients. And then beyond that is kind of community. And then beyond that is like, uh, kind of like now what you call like marketing or brand or just it, I might be getting one, one of those mixed on the, on the outside but so the same principle is the same with that idea is like marketing marketing doesn't start facing out necessarily marketing starts at the product marketing starts at like what it is your thing is and that's where we're so fortunate in that on a principles basis our choice to lead with a self-custody based solution lead with support for multi-sig which is a, a you know bitcoin native construct and concept and something you know seen as early on in like 2010 or so and the Bitcoin talk forums, Hal Finney and others are talking about multi-sig things. And, and I may have been speaking that because like technically multi-sig didn't enter the protocol until 2013 with, thanks to Bitco. But the matter, the notion of this kind of collaborative custody construct around Bitcoin, it's something that so many AOGs could see, so many people in the community would just say, oh, this is the right, this is the way it should work. But nobody was necessarily you know, building it. It means it really endears us to that kind of core, core subset of the community that kind of most in it for the long run and for the right reasons, people that are not just seeing it as a speculative asset, but seeing Bitcoin as a tool for freedom, a sovereign bit of property, and really new, unique digital, digital I hate to say take gold, but you know, that kind of a mindset. So building the, the right service right. And then from there, just being good enough at what we do, providing great service, every client gets treated very well and has a good experience working with us. And then I mentioned the kind of course aspect of working with their community. That's totally there. And then on the brand level, we're making some further investments there. We're going you know, to have some updates and announcements soon, but that's you know, another kind of important component. And you know, we advertise on good podcasts to make sure we're out there. You know, as far as like growing the, the Bitcoin sphere, that's all. That's also further investment in the community. You know, we at Unchained have hosted our offices for several years, the Austin Bitcoin developer community. On our floor here uh, downtown Austin, there's the, the Bitcoin Commons, which is a suite of about 4,000 square feet uh, down the hall from us that community sponsors involved with it. It's a place that once a week, at least, there's some kind of Bitcoin or community meetup. Marty Benton, his podcast, they record in there. And any given day, there's you know at least half a dozen or a dozen Bitcoiners and other community or company employees that are Bitcoin working out of there. So it's, a, it's a kind of a, that's that idea of like building and supporting community and investing in it has been there all along. And then we, we do a lot of education on our blog. And the, there's a series written by our former head of business development that is really grateful, graduated suddenly. Uh, helped uh, clarify a lot of kind of basic things about Bitcoin for people with very well-written set of essays. That gives us a very comprehensive view as to how you're thinking about evangelization 
and the footprint expansion, which I think is so critical in considering the advantage that you have from being one of the the last men standing, really, after I think a lot of creative destruction and and also market driven destruction in the turmoil we saw last year. And you are in a position where you have a little bit more optionality through execution to really turn on the dial in creating adoption and enlarging that footprint. And again, I want to reemphasize this because as much as the technology is compelling, it needs to be true value being evangelized to a broader set of, of potential customers. Which brings me to my next question, which is, do you fundamentally believe that Bitcoin can deliver a more efficient, transparent, and cost-effective infrastructural alternative for money? I mean, Bitcoin can't unless you layer in the financial services and people and projects and initiatives and efforts and an ecosystem on top of it. Uh, so, you know, just a purely, strictly limited basis, Bitcoin as software doesn't do you much. Or like testnet, same dang software as Bitcoin proper, no value to it, do nothing. Just except for you know, helping helping developers on the development path for things that you know find their ways to production using you know quote real Bitcoin. So Bitcoin only works because of everything else around it. And once you add that stuff in, then like yes, I would say absolutely is capable of engulfing and swallowing whole large swaths of the, the traditional financial system. It's not going to swallow all of it anytime soon. I think that you know, these things will have to coexist for a very very long time. And the traditional financial system is deeply entrenched and evolved and you know, necessary and you know, life giving life breathing and part of our, our daily lives and that's it's part of why you know we offer a, a bitcoin secured loan product because people need you know to like fiat for to survive but i do see bitcoin as a as just being able to serve all the functions of money and then as long as you get the infrastructure and pieces built right around it over time it will be as good and better than what we have today in traditional finance no it's good to hear you reiterate the belief but in a pragmatic manner, right? I don't sense a dogmatic, ideological bent overwhelming your argument, right? And how you're outlining it. You are definitely defining the dependencies. You're defining the prerequisites for it to thrive. And what I find is missing in a lot of arguments, you know, as a whole in the crypto space sometimes is not acknowledging those dependencies, not acknowledging the pre-existing condition that we find ourselves in. And so I think it's very important to take a pragmatic stance because Rome wasn't built in a day, right? And there are steps by which you start highlighting some of the value over time as your argument is being made obvious through empirical demonstration is how you eventually win not only people over, but you get their adoption. They vote with their feet. They put their money where their mouth is. So if we think about specifically this in the difficult situation that crypto as a whole finds itself, and now more broadly, there is also a macro context, especially as it applies to new endeavors, trying to create, innovate, change, or improve on the way certain things were done in the past. We're definitely being challenged as a whole for a variety of reasons. How is this market different from when you got started? And what is the impact of this new phase that we're in on your business? Yeah, I think something I mentioned, we you know, talked about is just the way in which, I mean, again, it's like kind of starry-eyed entrepreneurs beginning in that kind of, oh, that 16 through 18 timeframe, 
you didn't have a lot of, I mean, all the evidence for Unchain had to come either from a way in which we just sort of made up or like could just kind of point to Bitcoin as like, yeah, it shouldn't be obvious to people this thing is going to keep going. And you know, won't there be some interesting businesses to build, be built on it? But it's just, it's really also like kind of reflected in Bitcoin's price as just a, a narrative, a meme, a you know, understood thing within the world that you're not really until like late 2020 when the you know, money finger go burr meme woke so many people up and then people had all this time in their hands to be on the internet and like, what is funny? How does this work? What's, people can just make more? That people just got definitely really like that, that concept sunk in. Like people knew it in their bodies now. They had a sense for what it, what, what central banking is, what an alternative might be. And then they had the time and the means and wherewithal to invest in it and get to know Bitcoin more. And then, you know, we like to point to events of, I guess they were a little over a year ago now, the, like the Canadian trucker protests, which not to be political about anything, but like, you know, led to true and very real financial censorship. People had their access to the banking system cut down as, as individuals based on transactions that they'd done because they tried to support. And so that also will people up to like, oh, it's, it's not really like my money at the bank. It's like, I can be cut off. I can be intermediated from that. And then we have the events of last quarter, that the actually blow up, BlockFi going under. I mean, these are then other front of the companies put this so well. It's just like early on, I used to be subconscious of the word counterparty risk on a website. As an entrepreneur, like you're marketing your product, you think, man, is, it, is that really going to get to people? Are people going to understand you know, what custody without counterparty risk means when they land on our website? But he joked, you know, I'm pretty sure counterparty risk just landed from the Bahamas in the US like the other week or something like that. Like people now are like woken up like, okay, what does that mean when your asset is sitting with someone else in their control and what that, that exposure risk is? So people are just kind of taking these ideas more seriously. All the bank issues we're seeing now this last week or two only kind of further wakes people up to that. So that's where just Bitcoin and then Unchained on top of it have this kind of anti-fragile, reflexive, like we benefit from these these kinds of, in a lot of ways, you know, unfortunate for a lot of people, I don't wish it on anyone, but hey, at least we're building a life raft. We're building like an alternative approach that now people, that the kind of value proposition even further crystallizes for folks. Oh, and I'm glad you're reiterating this again in a very pragmatic and non-dogmatic approach in describing the advantages and the trade-offs, right? And you're always... Whenever you gain something, you have to give up something on the other side. And just for listeners, we're recording this in a week where we've had one of the largest banking failures in the history of America. A lot of it impacts the startup world. And we see time and again the fact that not only can money transfers or your funds be intercepted or preventing from going from point A to point B, that the centralization model that a lot of the banking system relies on, despite all the protections in place like FDIC insurance and other mechanisms that will allow for the recovery of customer deposits, these are incredibly disruptive events, right? And so even though in theory, you might have mechanisms that protect depositors, protect the assets that they've entrusted a custodian with, these things, liquidity is also a matter of availability, right? And when can you have access to your funds? And so for businesses that require funds immediately, even if they could have access to those funds six months, 12 months from now, they might not be around to ever see those funds, right? And so I think what we've seen, even in 
the dislocations in the crypto markets last year was that the decentralized components, as flawed as they can be in terms of not allowing for the expansion of credit, not allowing for under-collateralized lending, well-functioning throughout. And they withstood the test of the dislocations in the market. And I would say at this juncture, having more control over your funds, having a means by which they can be transferred efficiently without going through literally desks and rows of people and approval processes, right? That can be very biased in times of stress, right? It's obvious that if you have a bank run, you are going to have employees within the bank, not necessarily intentionally, but I think there will be an inherent bias towards dragging their feet to let money leave the bank, right? Because it's detrimental to their own survival as employees within that institution. This does not happen when money is code and when you have programmable money because you have a whole other level of control in your ability to transfer and move funds around, right? So I'm hoping that, and this is timely again, that we're having this discussion at a time of tremendous turmoil. I'm hoping that we can actually design something in the next decade that takes the best of all worlds and ensure that these types of events no longer disrupt the functioning of the economy. What do you think, if anything, needs to change in Bitcoin for it to thrive beyond its current adoption? And does it really matter to you if it does? I mean, I think uh, if you cap Bitcoin's ownership where it is today and market cap and everything never really grew, I think there'd still be a business for Unchained and maybe some of our competitors and people that service this market, but might consolidate or just the returns become different. I think there's some long-term dependence and certainly in the investment case for, for Unchained that Bitcoin is going to continue to grow in its adoption and price. And I think it's got too many sailings for that to not be your bet. And demographically, um, economically, I just don't see there to be the kinds of events that you know, reverse all the progress and uh, entrenchment that is made. What do you think of recent developments within the Bitcoin community? And as much as I'm going to say something very controversial, but seen ordinals, which are NFTs on Bitcoin, you're seeing efforts to create more of a programmable environment, a layer up on the stack there. So on some level, it's almost like it's trying to Web3, quote unquote, enable Bitcoin and create a vibrant layer two ecosystem for applications and services that require a higher transactional throughput, for example. What do you think of all these initiatives and as they progress away from the original ethos of Bitcoin? Because on some level, to your point, you know, Bitcoin isn't really a solution in search of a problem, right? Bitcoin is just Bitcoin. It's a store of value. It is the seminal original blockchain. It is the most time-tested, robust, demonstrated implementation of blockchain. One can argue Ethereum is definitely reached that level, especially as they're going through their own upgrades, which introduce a level of complexity. But Bitcoin is the original, right? And so what do you think of these developments and innovations currently being pursued to create the Bitcoin ecosystem and to broaden it? Yeah. And so in my response, you know, I guess I would want, pardon me, wants to be careful. I, and they do not represent the views of my employer or uh, all the people at the company kind of a thing. And I'm kind of, I'm like open-minded, free market kind of person. If it's there, if it can be utilized, go for it. I think 
there's a lot of that kind of attention. And for me, you know, I'll say like the fun attention, the energy that like the people like trying new things and like the, the kind of culture. I think Bitcoin could benefit from more cultural tapestry of concepts around it. I think for it to be just pigeonholed as digital gold does hurt the, how its message can kind of carry or I think it'll, it's eventually still a dominating message and winning proposition for finance. But I think it could happen faster if there's these kind of other things accepted or allowed. Like, I'm not going to be able to speak to the technical trade-offs, the downsides, the you know, stuff like that that you have to deal with if you're, you allow certain applications. But I also think Bitcoin is technology and technology can be used and misused in ways you don't always intend initially. And that's why, in fact, a lot of the early support and functionality in Bitcoin, I don't know why it's known. I might have you know, had those explained to me that like initially when Satoshi launched, Bitcoin had like so many opcodes, so many of these like these bells and whistles and features and things you could kind of do with it or different transaction types. And it was the kind of consensus among the community and a lot of the expert cryptographers people at the time that that was way too big of an attack service and was just kind of inviting a lot of security risks for people. And so things got trimmed down and I, and I think in like a significant way, so at least like 50%, as much 60, 70, 80% of like all the initial functionality was trimmed out. And I think in, in hindsight, probably a very sound decision as far as trying to build good, stable money. But then for, and I think like where we see and a lot of my co-founders sees as well as a lot of the, the data applications and the other fancier stuff happening on layers, happening on layer two, like the lightning for Bitcoin. And so that's a narrative I can definitely get behind and see the credibility of. One last point I want to touch on is regulation. It's the elephant in the room. As you think about your billing financial services capabilities, you've got a lending business, you've got a business that fundamentally helps people really custody their own assets, right? And it's a novel way to approach it, right? And so it's a novel way to conduct banking primitives on some level. And so I'm wondering at the micro level of your business, the importance of regulation and how it's going to evolve. And if you could elaborate on where you see sort of the constraints, where you see things developing, and then more broadly speaking, thinking about Bitcoin as an ecosystem, how do you think it will evolve in the face of regulation? Yeah, all great questions. And I think chains are really fortunate, both for being Bitcoin only focused and self-custody focused. And I think the care we took into instrumenting AML, KYC into our product from the very beginning and abiding by all lending laws and only ever dealing with dollar lending. We've just been hyper-conservative in a way that does serve us and it's meant that we've not had any of the slaps and you know, issues and big regulatory woes and have, in fact, helped where we can advance things like the, the bill passed in Texas for adding Bitcoin to the UCC and helping us others that take lend, uh, Bitcoin as collateral have more sound statutes to depend on. So I think... Because like when I and then when I watch like this next bill in session of you know bills that are going in front of the Texas legislature and have digital asset type things and virtual asset service providers and things like that like we're just we're just exempt it's great no custody for people it's awesome we do however allow people to buy and sell Bitcoin through us uh, and then so for a lot of states that requires a money transmission license so we have those we're available in forty plus states for that kind of uh, practice and we have lending licenses. I have a California lending license, although we switched our model there to now we originate through a banking partner. So I think it's just, you bet you're coming up like the, you know, navigating the seas. It's about having good capable leadership. We're fortunate to have a chief compliance officer who was at the regulator at the OCC for a number of years and just like a lot of experience broadly across all you know, layers and places within finance. And so he's really helped navigate what we do from a compliance point of view and you know, launch safe and sound products that don't bring those kinds of risks. So I think 
I really look at Unchained, and again, just like, you come back to fundamentals of what are regulations for? Well, they're there to protect consumers. So, okay, well, how well did that work for like your regulators in the existing banking system or your models that you know do involve sitting on other people's money and involving in fractional reserve type of things? You look at a model like Unchained, like I just don't know, like bank CEOs, like do it. Cause like, I just know in my heart of hearts, we can go bankrupt tomorrow and none of our clients, the billions of dollars that Bitcoin help secure, we're going to lose anything. I know if everyone came knocking on our doors or logging in, moving their Bitcoin to something else, like in one day, like it would do nothing to the business. Of course, like it's not current client service, like uh, the worst day ever, but like nobody was harmed. Nobody, you know, they, one person withdrawing Bitcoin didn't harm another. And so I think it's just where as regulations evolve, I want Unchain to be positioned and seen as that kind of way you can do financial services around this asset that don't incur the kinds of risks and consumer and potential consumer harm that you do really want regulations to, to come around for. So you can't you know, necessarily crystal ball the way regulations are going to affect every corner of the industry and whether like things like a mining tax bills, like stands a chance. I think those things are unfortunate and you know, misguided, but I think you know, models like an Unchained, we hope to be you know, pretty well insulated from the, I guess, a lot of the ways really hardcore traditional banking, banking is set up. I think it's a great way to conclude this conversation, sending a positive message of what is possible, albeit with its own sort of set of trade-offs and limitations that you're constantly working on improving and regenerating. But especially in this period of tremendous turmoil, where the notion of the fragility of our financial banking and monetary system is being highlighted on a daily basis, to have a message such as yours, I think is invigorating. And whilst it doesn't provide all the answers to the problems that we're facing, I think it's a good outlook, right? And so I commend you for, again, taking a stance that, at least from my perspective and listening to you, did not come across as slanted or lacking pragmatism, but very much one that's actually trying to come up with very concrete solutions to the issues of custodying, to the issues of generating liquidity to your customers and to a community that is bound to hopefully grow and adopt for reasons that we've elaborated on. So I want to thank you very much for for spending some time with me today. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. I think that you have a story of, as we made clear earlier, of grit and determination, and it carries through very well. So thank you very much for spending the time with us today. Thanks, Massine. Yeah, it's a pleasure. And I think Bitcoin on chain represents some glimmers of hope for an evolved financial system for everybody. And yeah, if people ever want to learn more, I'm you know, at Joseph Kelly on Twitter and unchained.com for our website. And, and thanks. And thanks so much. This podcast is produced by Rado Venture Management LLC, RVM. RVM is not an investment advisor. The opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of any entities they represent, not investment advice.